Okay, so last week we were continuing this process of gradually opening up the field of our awareness to include more and more challenging aspects of our experience, including our thoughts and our emotions. And I just want to maybe re-emphasize that the point, the purpose of doing this is not to try to get rid of our mental activity. We're not trying to stop the mind thinking. We're not trying to suppress any emotions that might naturally come up. Instead, it's about developing a wiser and kinder relationship with our mental activity. So I sometimes call this process befriending the mind, or perhaps befriending the heart-mind. And I emphasize that befriending because so many people are at war with their own minds. And then they tend to bring that same struggle to the practice, battle with the mind and try to make it be less like that and more like this and should and shouldn't and all of the things we've been talking about. So there's still often that underlying belief that real meditation is not about having any thoughts or just abiding in some permanently calm, still, tranquil place. But in an insight practice, this kind of meditation, the emphasis is on seeing clearly, seeing clearly what is happening in our hearts and minds becoming familiar with our own default tendencies and habits and patterns of reaction. So that then with wisdom we can see, discern, which of these habits are not so helpful, learn to let them go, release, and at the same time see which patterns are beneficial and helpful, and those ones we want to strengthen and develop So the first stage in that whole process is seeing clearly. And in order to see clearly, we need to have a mind that has some degree of calm and stillness. And that's why we generally begin our meditation by paying attention to the breath as a way of steadying and stabilizing the mind. And in that process, there are a couple of analogies that are sometimes used in the classical teachings that illustrate this. So one of them is in this uh, orientation towards steadying and settling. We can think of the mind as being like a jar of muddy pond water. So if you think of a jar that's filled with cloudy water, if we keep giving it a shake every few minutes, what happens? The sediment stays stirred up. The water stays, as a word, turbid, dingy, dull. We can't see clearly. On the other hand, if we just put the jar to one side and leave it alone, there's a natural process of gravity and that sediment settles and over time we get clear water again. So one thing we're trying to do here metaphorically is just let that surface activity of the mind settle out. And one reason we go on retreat is because this process just takes time. And most of us live such hyper-stimulated, hyper-busy, overwhelmed, stressful, chaotic lives that 15 minutes of meditation 
half an hour of meditation for most of us doesn't allow the mind to settle fully. But on retreat, we have the specialized circumstances that do allow us to touch in to that depth, that stillness, that clarity. The other analogy is similar in that it also uses water as a metaphor for the mind. And it's said that the mind is like a pool or a pond. And when the water is completely calm and still, we can see through it. And we can see all the creatures that live in that pond, the fish and the other kind of things that live there, and maybe the plants, the water plants too. But again, obviously with that image, when the water is agitated, we can't see, we stay on the surface and we can't see what's going on beneath the surface. So in the classical teachings, when it comes to developing this calm, clear mind, there's a set of five particular mental qualities that are seen, recognized as being challenging for the mind. And these are known as the hindrances. And these hindrances are also likened to different qualities of water. So in the time of the Buddha, they didn't have mirrors. Most households didn't have mirrors. What they used instead of a mirror was a bowl of water. And the water had to be still and steady, and then you could get an accurate reflection. So the Buddha recognized these five different, you could say, afflictive qualities that really hinder, get in the way of clear seeing. And the first one is desire for sense pleasure. Now this is not saying that there's anything wrong with experiencing sense pleasure, but in the context of our meditation sitting, if we're sitting fantasizing about what we're going to have for dinner when we get back and glass of wine we're going to have with it and what's going to be on Netflix and where our favorite cushion is going to be and maybe we'll have that bit of ice cream afterwards. Not so much clear seeing there. And the analogy for that is like the bowl of water is filled with different colored dyes and it's all stirred up and we get fascinated by the rainbow but it's on the surface and we don't see more clearly. So Desire for sense pleasure is the first of these classical hindrances. And one example is, well, one antidote to deal with that is to take the attention out of the mind that is spilling, spinning all these fantasies and notice instead what is pleasant right now in this moment. Because if we can ex access some pleasantness now, we're less likely to be fantasizing about the bowl of ice cream. So we may have done this exercise before, but it's a very good training. Because we have this inbuilt negativity bias, and we tend to focus on what's uncomfortable and not quite right, it's a very good training as part of your meditation to keep attuning to what is pleasant. So even right now, Anybody willing to name, right now in your experience, is there anything that's pleasant? The color of those flowers. Yeah, color. seeing the color of the flowers is pleasant. Yeah, thank you. Just being here is pleasant. Just being here. 
Just sitting here, listening, being in a pleasant space with friends. Very pleasant. Anyone else? The comfort of the cushions. The comfort of the cushions. Oh. I, I could almost fall asleep right now for some reason. That's quite pleasant. Yeah, so a sort of relaxed, settled, yeah, not agitated, pleasant. It's happening, so it is allowed, but it's a bit more, that's more an example of being pulled into the future rather than here and now. So can you find anything here and now that's pleasant? Yeah, so just appreciating the body's relaxed. So if we can gather the awareness onto the present moment into a more embodied sense of what's subtly pleasant, that can help stop the forward reaching um, that takes us out of the present moment. And when we really look, it's actually quite agitating and unpleasant. So that can shade over into the second of these hindrances. Some of you might be familiar with this teaching. Anybody heard it before? No? So the second one is aversion or ill will. And it's the opposite of sense desire. It's the pushing away, the resistance, the hitting out, the irritation, the frustration, all of those negative um, mind states. Very common when we sit down to meditate. Any form of not wanting, not liking, resisting. And most of us have some discomfort in the body, right? And that can easily become something that we struggle with, that sets up uh, irritation or frustration or self-judgment. So the classical image for this is the bowl of water is boiling. It's been heated. It's bubbling away with aversion and steam is coming off. And I quite like that analogy because hot water is painful. You know, It's actually painful to have a mind that's caught in aversion. And it also has the potential to harm others if we spill that boiling water on other people. So I'm going through these pretty quickly, but one classic aversion for, sorry, aversion, (laughs) Freudian slip, one classic antidote for aversion is kindness. The kind of practice we did a couple of weeks ago where we realized, wow, the mind is getting caught in ill will and aversion here, can I settle into good will and strengthen kindness, warmth, care? We might need to start that actually with compassion for ourselves because aversion is unpleasant. So the first step might be just to recognize, oh, this is painful, this hurts. Can I be aware of this pain? Can I care about it? May this pain release, and may I know peace. So those are just some classic compassion phrases that can help to settle the aversion or ill will. So the third one is known traditionally as sloth and torpor, which are old-fashioned English words for basically drowsiness, sluggishness, stiffness in the mind, 
sleepiness and so on. Any kind of low energy, physically or mentally. And, you know, I just wonder if some of you might be experiencing a trace of that now. Very common when we first sit down, especially as I was saying earlier, because we're so busy and agitated. Often when we sit down, the body just goes, yeah, finally. Or the mind goes, yes, time for a break. And we just switch off completely. So especially when we're new to meditation, this is a very common one that we tend to struggle with. And remembering that I'm inviting non-struggle How do we just meet that sleepiness with kindness rather than judgment? Because in a way it's common sense. If we fight what's actually happening, we're fighting with reality. That only saps the energy even more and creates more tiredness. So classically, if this is just a little sort of drowsy and drifty, we can open the eyes. Just letting in more light stimulates the nervous system. Sitting up a bit straighter, likewise, brings up more energy. Taking some deeper and fuller breaths can sometimes just help re-energize. If we're really getting naughty, sometimes standing up, doing a few minutes of standing meditation is helpful. Because there's more energy available to us when we're upright and the effort, subtle effort to not fall over also refreshes the system. So, or if it's really extreme, we might do some walking meditation. So if you wake up in the morning and you're feeling really sleepy but you like to meditate, you might just do, you know, five up and down your living room, walk up and down five times just to get the energy going. And then when you sit down, you're less likely to just go back to sleep. So sloth and torpor is an imbalance of energy in the side of not enough energy. But often these things have a habit of working in pairs. We slide off into not enough energy and then, oh, I've been asleep, oh, oh, and then we get to the other extreme, going into restlessness and worry. So that's the imbalance of energy on the too high side, the revved up, agitated, anxious side. Sometimes physically it just feels like we're about to jump out of our skin and the body just will not settle We get an itch and we move and then this aches and that aches and we just... You might have noticed the more you move, the more you want to move. So it's a fine line here between maintaining some degree of stillness and steadiness. So the body can be agitated and then the mind distracted, scattered, jumping here and there all over the place, won't focus, won't come to stillness. And the metaphor for this is a bowl of water that's whipped up, bless you, whipped up by the wind, all little wavelets, it's all choppy. And again, because of that chopped upness, we don't see clearly. So again, we try not to get caught in frustration about this, but just make space for that agitation to be there. 
Usually when we have some kind of problem or something we don't like, the tendency is to tense up around it, to sort of clamp down on it, to brace against it, to tighten it. Oh, I'm so restless. But that only makes it worse. So it's a counter move to go, okay, restlessness, not liking it. Can I just make space? So like I just did, again, sitting up straighter, opening up the chest, softening the shoulders, breathing a bit more deeply. And if the energy is really up in the head, agitated in the head, then you might bring the attention down physically to the ground and really notice the contact of the legs and the feet with the floor. Really notice the sitting bones on the cushion. And even imaginatively, Feel yourself connected to the stability of the earth so that that mental energy can kind of discharge down into the earth. Sometimes we can prompt ourselves to orient, to incline towards calm. So you might have noticed, I may have offered this guidance in some of the breathing meditation, that when you breathe in, if the mind's refined, you might notice that with each in-breath, there's quite a subtle sense of enlivening because the body's taking in oxygen. So if we're experiencing sloth and torpor, to go back to the previous one, you might consciously focus on the in-breath and notice that sense of enlivening and invigorating. For restlessness and worry... We want to notice more the out-breath, because the out-breath, there's a natural sense of softening and releasing and relaxing as the body lets go of the breath that's no longer needed. So if there's restlessness and worry, you might just really notice breathing in, breathing out, and really pay attention to the out-breath. Sometimes you can even make the mental note calm at the end of the out-breath. It's just an invitation to strengthen that orientation to calm. So it might be in, out, calm. In, out, calm. But it's just a suggestion, not a commandment, because if we're going in, out, calm... In, out, calm. <laughs> Obviously, that's not going to work. So if you find yourself doing that, then just drop it. Try another technique. So the last of these five is what's known as skeptical doubt. And this is really the most, probably the most challenging of the five. Because it's hardest to recognize. And it really f refers to any kind of questioning, undermining thought pattern that gets in the way of our meditating. So it can show up as doubt about the practice. Yeah, I don't get this. How's it supposed to work? Is this really working? What are we all doing here anyway? Wouldn't we be better just watching Netflix or playing tennis or something? Or it can show up as doubt about the teacher. She doesn't look very enlightened. Like, where did she say she got her training? Or it can show up as doubt about the teachings. 2,600 years ago in India, how is that supposed to be relevant to us here today? Or it can show up as self-doubt. 
well, it might work for everyone else in the room, but I'm a uniquely hopeless case. (laughs) So we start to recognize, sounds like, some of these patterns are pretty common. And this one is called skeptical doubt to distinguish it from questioning. Because in the insight tradition, we want to encourage investigation, healthy questioning. And healthy questioning is onward leading in that it opens up new areas of exploration. We get new insights as opposed to the questioning of doubt, which generally is just undermining and keeps us stuck and blocked and closed to new answers. So the metaphor in terms of the bowl of water is a bowl of muddy water locked in a dark cupboard. And I find that quite interesting that there's that double whammy. Not only is the water dark and muddy, but it's physically in a dark and enclosed place. So one of the classical antidotes to doubt is to get more information, you know, to see if you can answer those questions listening to talks or reading books or um, meeting with a teacher talking about your practice. Sometimes looking for role models for people who inspire us. You know, maybe you have a favorite teacher whose talks you listen to, or maybe there's a public figure who really inspires you. Maybe Pema Chodron or Tara Brach or um, Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, probably you all have someone that you have a sense of this person's walked this path and has got some benefits from it. So sometimes just bringing to mind a living being that we have this sense of they have managed to do what I'm trying to do. That can inspire more confidence. So those are the five classical hindrances. And I wanted to name them just really to normalize them because they are going to be part of our meditation practice for a pretty long time perhaps not as intense as they are in the beginning, but even very advanced long-term meditators are still working with these hindrances, perhaps on more refined, more subtle levels. But as we learn how to recognize them and how to help them release, what that does is it creates more space in the heart and the mind for the beneficial qualities to grow So the different flavors of love, like kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, for clarity, for generosity, for stability of mind, for wisdom, all of those start to become more available because we've cleared out the metaphorical garden of all the weeds and rocks and rubble, and then those positive qualities can start to really blossom So that's what I'd like to experiment with in this next meditation. But are there any questions before we give that a go? Clear enough? Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.